second. The title is Driven by Integrity. Paul moves into a section where he explains his motivations as he worked with them. Driven by Integrity. And of course that asks for us a question, what is your motive in all the things that you that you do. We're going to look at that as we go. It's in a series. The series is Living in Hope, taken from uh, uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We're going to go through both, look at the second coming of Christ. He's trying to prepare the church. And uh, we'll read from there, verses 1 to 6. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either among you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. This, is, this short passage is rich uh, with thought that we're going to investigate. Just for those particularly that uh, haven't uh, come, the background of First Thessalonians in its historical context was that Thessalonians was written to the church in Thessalonica, which was filled with persecution and rapid change. The writing style is uh, a deeply personal tone with an intense emotional investment in the people of the church. And the message and purpose is the letter aims to encourage and instruct the church about issues related to the second coming of Christ and the Christian faith. The first three chapters are remembrances of how they, they came to be, how they came to hear the gospel, and the last two chapters are, uh, have a, a string of exhortations, of commandments, of things that they need to observe. Chapter 1 relates what happened when the Word of God came to Thessalonica. Paul emphasised the supernatural, the power of the Gospel and the role of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, Paul again recalls his ministry at Thessalonica and in verses 1 to 6, he highlights his motives and integrity as he shares the Gospel. 
Paul's world was turned upside down when he received the message of the gospel. In a spectacular encounter with the risen and living Jesus, the Messiah on the road to Damascus, where he was on his way to persecute the believers in Damascus. For Paul, this changed his whole life, his worldview, his way of doing everything. And Paul is driven by the integrity of seeking only one thing, to be pleasing to God. We read in writing to the Philippians, uh, the Philippian believers, he says in Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Someone has said this, and we're not sure of who it is because I've seen two quotes, two sources quoted. One was uh, uh, William MacDonald, the other was C.S. Lewis, but no one can exactly find the quote, but it's worth thinking about. What we are is far more important than anything we ever say. Our unconscious influence speaks more loudly than our conscience influence, conscious influence. You know, we're in a day uh, in social media where, where people set themselves up and parade themselves as influencers. And really what they are about is gain and gaining a following and getting a luxury life out of the, the things that they can exploit by their following. Paul is very, very different uh, to the modern influencer. In the first two verses, we're going to see that he is beaten, but bold. He and Silas and, and uh, possibly Timothy, although Timothy joined a bit later. Paul, Silas and Timothy ministered in spite of suffering, insult and opposition. Shriner in the uh, uh, Grace and Truth Study Bible says this in chapters 2 to 3, Paul recounts his authentic gospel ministry covering the nature of his past ministry in Thessalonica in chapter 2 verses 1 to 16 and defending his current absence in chapter 2 verses 17 through to 310 he notes that there's a debate about whether verses 1 to 16 is a defence or simply exemplary. And he says even if it is a defence, Paul's life still stands as an example to the believers. When you look at each thing he claims, it looks rather like he's being accused of error and false teaching and false motives. Uh, it may or may not be. It's clear in these letters to the Corinthians that he is defending his reputation uh, for the sake of the gospel, but here it's not as clear. But we need to look at what he says in each of these things in verse 1. It's not in vain. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Paul appeals to the reader's own recall of the, mission, of the missions, missionary's visit. He reminds the Thessalonians that their visit was not in vain. The word is for vain is kenos. It means empty, without content, without result, empty of substance and character. 
the complete Jewish Bible translated as not fruitless. And he says, you yourselves know. They could see for themselves that the missionary work had not been a failure. His preaching had yielded positive results. It had borne fruit in their lives. We read in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, the word that was going out about the Thessalonians was that for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The preaching of the gospel in that city, despite the opposition, produced dramatic results. Pagan Gentiles turned from worshipping idols to following the living God. Paul used kenos again in chapter 3, writing that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labour would be in vain. A similar expression is, is used by Paul in his letter to the saints at Philippi, exhorting them to be continually holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Yet Paul knew that no labour in the Lord is vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Not only was it not in vain, but they proclaimed it faithfully despite suffering and shame. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, they ministered despite hardship and persecution. They were suffered and mistreated. The ESV uh, Bible translation says shamefully treated. The word uh, here means hubris thentes, means injury, insult, reproach, arrogance, insolence, ill treatment. We get the English word from this Greek word, hubris, to act with insolence, wantonness, wicked violence, to treat injuriously, all with the intent to humiliate. As John MacArthur notes, the uh, suffered refers primarily to the physical abuse, whereas mistreated refers... Um, whereas mistreated refers to public disgrace or even legal abuse. They were unjustly judged and made prisoners when they had committed no crime. You read of it in Acts 16, 23 to 24, and it says, When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Their only crime was preaching the gospel, yet they had been publicly stripped and flogged without any inquiry into the charges brought against them and having their feet placed in stocks while confined in the cities in a prison. And of course, you'll remember Paul and Silas were found singing hymns <laughs> at midnight when a great earthquake came. And uh, 
they were able to lead the, the, the jailer and his family to the Lord at that time. He says we had boldness in opposition. As you know, we had the boldness, notice this little phrase, in our God. To speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Despite facing persecution and mistreatment in Philippi, Paul and his companions boldly shared the gospel with the Thessalonians, relying on God's help. Having previously been imprisoned for being open about his faith and openly giving the gospel message to others, one could imagine that Paul might have been a bit hesitant to give the gospel message to Thessalonians. Have you ever found yourself in that situation where someone's given you such a hard time for sharing anything about being Christian that you feel like clamming up and never opening up again? But not Paul and Timothy and Silas. He was not hesitant at all. As Scott Grant says, why did they do so when declaring the gospel got them in so much trouble? Their boldness, notice as I said, was in our God. You see, Paul was human just like you and me and his source of courage and bold speech was not in self but in God. He reminds us of his humanness in 1 Corinthians, writing that he was with them in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. So if you felt that, <laughs> be encouraged. Paul could do it only in the Lord. The word boldness uh, means freedom or frankness in speaking or confident in spirit and demeanor with the freedom to speak openly, even in the face of opposition. You see, their holy boldness was not self-made, but spirit-empowered. It was not self-confidence that the world promotes, but a confidence based solely on their God and their trust that he would sustain them. As John Piper notes, it was Paul's boldness in evangelizing that kept his life from being vain. And it will be our boldness that keeps our lives from being bland and tasteless and empty and weak and insignificant in the end. In our course that we've been doing in the night, one of the questions that Dr. John Barnett regularly asks is who are you taking to heaven <laughs> interesting question isn't it it's not all up to us by the way <laughs> but we are given we are ambassadors of Christ to, to help lead others to him and to one day take that harvest with us into heaven the only, only eternal thing that you can take with you is those who have received the message. In his letter to the saints at Ephesus, Paul requested specifically in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You know, as believers, we need to have that same heart desire, that prayer for boldness. 
We live in a society that wants to intimidate us, wants Christians to go away and hide in a corner somewhere and, and shut up. But our message goes completely contrary. And instead of the arrogant boldness that the world has that wants to proclaim we can do whatever we like, we have to proclaim, no, but there's a God who will hold you accountable. And to do that in this climate, we need increasingly the boldness of the Lord to, to, to proclaim the truth, not in worldly arrogance, not in, 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 in uh, some sort of attitude of superiority, for we are just like the world, we are all sinners. But we need to be seeking the Lord for the boldness to proclaim him regardless of what comes against us. You notice that it was in, uh, for boldness in much opposition. The word is conflict. Agoni, which uh, is the word from the English gets agony. It's often used to describe the strain of an athletic contest such as a wrestling match or a race. You see, the Agon was a place of assembly, but particularly an assembly to see games, the place of contest, the arena or stadium, any struggle or contest, a battle, an action at law, trial. Now, some of you were watching the battle of the football yesterday. For those that are footy mad, you were watching the grand final. And apparently it was a close contest. I didn't watch it, you can tell. Um, but it was a close contest, and uh, I know our friend Graham will be rejoicing that Collingwood won. Uh, everywhere we went, even in South Africa, he always had his Collingwood uh, scarf on. Even when Collingwood were repeatedly losing, we used to give him a hard time for that, but he had his day come today. But you see, they were bold in the face of much opposition. Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to change that one. The second part in verses 3 to 4 is that they were improved and entrusted by God. This is Robert, as Gundry notes, this second explanation of the evangelistic success in Thessalonica consists in the bona fides of Paul and the missionary company. The first thing he points out is that they spoke truth, not tricks. For our exhortation does not come for er from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Paul assures the Thessalonians that their message was sincere and free from error or deceit. And he uses three distinctly different words to affirm the truthfulness of his ministry, each expressing a contrast with what was characteristic of false teachers. He categorically denies three false motives. And the first was error. The word there is planes, it means going astray. Their message was true and not erroneously false. In 2 Thessalonians 2.11, he writes, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding, a planes, uh, in other words, uh, 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 an influence that will lead them astray, so that they will believe what is false. The source of Paul's message was not the product of deception or illusion. 
And you have to contrast that against the innumerable cults and sects that have arisen under the leadership of men and sometimes women who were seemingly very sincerely motivated. You've only got to meet Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons down the street. Genuine, most. Some might be con artists, but most quite genuine. But part of their problem is like that of the Jews who had zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge or truth. The second is impurity, akathasia, and it means uncleanness, foulness of a wound or a sore, and in a moral sense, depravity. Their manner of life was pure, not sexually wicked. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, that same verb again, akathasia, but in sanctification. The cults that they came to, the pagan worship cults, were filled with moral impurity, uh, sexual uncleanness. Uh, they worshipped through their sexual activity. And Paul Apple notes, the ministry and minister must not be associated with sexual impurity, which was even an expected component of many of the debauched pagan religions of Paul's day. We have all heard sad stories where women became emotionally dependent upon the male ministry leader in such a way that the end result was inappropriate conduct. Unfortunately, it's all too easy for unscrupulous, lascivious spiritual leaders to take advantage of the emotions of those who were in stressful situations. But Paul says we're not like that. And nor was it in deceit, dolos. This is an interesting picture. How many of you are fishermen here, like going out and fishing with uh, particularly a, a rod and line, not, not the uh, easy catching net, but you've got to put your energy in and your patience. And I saw a photo of my brother-in-law the other day. He was really chuffed with himself. He's retired now. And uh, he caught his f first fly fishing, um, not tuna, uh, trout, that's the one. Starts with a T, I knew we had it there roughly. And he had the grin like a schoolboy with his, his nice, nice trout that he'd caught. Well, you know, fishing is a deception. D did you know that? Fishing with a line, what do you do? You, you put a bait or a lure that looks like food to lure the fish in. He thinks he's going to get a tasty bite. Instead, he gets bitten or hooked. Paul says, you know, um, we're not trying to entrap you. Dolos depicts an attempt to entrap another by means of trickery. We use guile when we fish by using a bait that appears like food to the fish. It's not food, but a decoy. In contrast, their method of ministry was authentic, not deceptive. There are many methods being used by churches today, and I believe so. quite a few of them are just this. They're deceptive. We'll offer people things. Even proclaiming the gospel, sometimes you've got to watch the way you proclaim it, that you're simply trying to lure someone into believing it, accepting it. They will, if that's the case, they will feel very betrayed when they awaken to the reality. 
Johnny Yoda says this in the devotional that actually is in your, uh, from our daily bread. A hypocrite will often pray on his knees on Sunday and pray on his neighbours on Monday. Slight spelling difference to play on words, P-R-A-Y and then P-R-E-Y. <laughs> and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And what he's saying in these, these three things is that he has pure doctrine, pure living, and pure motives. There's nothing false about, the, about what they were doing. Yeah, sorry, I'm behind. Approved by God, he says, verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the, with the gospel. And the word approved uh, means to be tested, proved, or approved. It's like tried as metals by fire and thus purified. Documazzo involves not only testing, but determining the genuineness or value of an event or object. And so they, they have been demonstrated by God to be genuine and trustworthy. Paul emphasizes that they've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Uh, David Stern from the uh, Complete Jewish Bible says, God has tested us and found us fit to be entrusted with good news. No man preaches the gospel of his own will, accord or authority, or at least he shouldn't. It must be the Lord's doing. And having been entrusted with the gospel, they spoke, and they spoke boldly. And notice why. Because they sought to be God-pleasing, not man-appeasing. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Their aim is to please God, not people. And they're not just doing what is pleasing to God, that is going through the motions, but they're doing it from a heart motivation that truly desires to please him. They are motivated by their divine accountability, their accountability before God. Hampton Keithley notes that whenever our primary aim is to please men, we lose our capacity to please God. Take note of that. You will be surprised if the Holy Spirit examines there may be places where you are acting in, in being uh, tempted to appease other people rather than to please God. It it's a constant tension for us. Pleasing people stems, though, from wrong motives such as fear of rejection, desire for approval, power, praise, and so on. Also, people, pleasing people occurs when we are seeking to meet our needs by our own strategies of protection or defense. The ever-present danger in ministry is the temptation to be men-pleasers instead of God-pleasers. I once had a, a, a lady in a ministry that we were in, in another state uh, that we were having great problems with. 
and the trying to work through those with this lady and um, she had a very negative attitude to any anyone outside of her little her little ministry and uh, <clears throat> felt competitions very sensitively and and one day I was sharing with her and she was talking about her six children of whom only two were following the Lord. And she said, and she had mostly boys, but she said, said to me this, uh, this, at this moment, I have shared it before, but she said to me, but you know, my boy said to me, you love this ministry more than us. <laughs> and she said to me, but you've got to do something for yourself. And there was an awkward silence. You see, she just revealed what her motive for the ministry was. It was for her significance, which is why she was defensive and why all those leaders that she had under her had been discipled in a negative and defensive way because the motive was wrong. She was doing it for her and her significance. And that's an easy trap. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you behave the way that you behave? When we, when we look at tensions within church bodies, often it's because people's motives are not uh, from a framework of integrity. They're looking for power. They're looking to please people, or they're looking for a following, or they're, or they're looking for what they can get out of it. I hear too many stories folk who've been in churches where that's exactly what the pastors are doing. Making a name for themselves, being the biggest church, uh, having power over people. And in fact, I, I was sharing in, uh, in, in Johannesburg, in the, out, in the, out in the Vale area, we ran a videotape because in the in the circles of prosperity doctrine churches, which are big in Africa because everyone wants a lifting out of poverty, I played this tape from a, an African pastor, and he was saying that the pastor, often referred to as the man of God, okay, that gives him status, and he said he's no better than a witch doctor who exploits you for what he can get out of you. This happens in ministry, but it's easy to see out there and point to others and point out those examples, but it happens within our own churches where our motives are impure. Where our motives are for some of these things where we want to gain acceptance overcome rejection, look for power or praise. Now, people need encouraging in the ministries, and if you watch Paul's letters, he does seek to encourage folk as well as to uh, rebuke where it's necessary and to exhort. But he's not about pleasing men. It is about pleasing God. Have a look at this table. Um, a man-pleaser refuses to speak hard truth. A God-pleaser is willing to speak all the truth. A man-pleaser says what people want to hear. 
God pleases say what people need to, says what people need to hear. That's within the bounds of grace and gentleness. Uh, a man pleaser flips flops on crucial issues. A God pleaser is consistent at all times. A man pleaser says one thing to one person, another to another. A God pleaser says the same thing all the time. A man pleaser is obedient when it's convenient. A God pleaser is obedient even when it hurts. A man pleaser tells the truth. It says most of the time, I'd say some of the time, and perhaps not too much of the time. But a God pleaser tells the truth all the time. A man pleaser is unwilling to offend over issues of truth, and a God pleaser is willing to offend in order to be faithful to God and for the sake of his hearers. Charles Spurgeon, over 150 years ago, but a great uh, preacher of Baptist background, says, a minister said to me, if I were to preach in your bold style, I would lose some of my richest people and offend the rest. <laughs> and if he did, would he not have an easy conscience, uh, Spurgeon says, and is not that worth more than money? The minister who cares any man's opinion when he is doing his duty is unworthy of his office. You see, he's speaking of a holy boldness, not a, an arrogant self-boldness. Many times along the way I've had folk to say to me, oh, you're brave preaching that, or going right through a book, even in the uncomfortable spots, and I, my standard reply has always been, but I'd be foolishly bold to do anything else. Why? Because I'd be ignoring people but God, or I'd be misusing the Word of God to say things that appeal to people but not to offend people. I, I once had a, a very early days here, someone come to me, oh, you shouldn't have preached that message today. And I said, oh, okay, why not? Well, you know what's going on in the church at that time. can't even remember what the issues were now. It's a long time ago. And I said to the person, but you know we've had a number of mission speakers that have come up at short notice. I'm several weeks behind where I would have been. The timing's the Lord's, not mine. And I'm not going to avoid it just because somebody's sensitive about it. If the Word says it, we have to deal with it. And, and that's, that's the key issue. Speaking to please God, not men, was always Paul's concern. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciousness. In Galatians 1, 9 and 10, he says, As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favour of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And the reason he is a God-pleaser that he notices that he says who examines our hearts. 
Not only did God sanction the missionaries to proclaim his gospel, he continues to approve of their inner motives and integrity. You know, God looks at the heart. We can be very impressive. Some, some of us can. Some of us are not so impressive, but that's okay. The danger is with charismatic, and I don't mean that in a theological sense, I mean that in a personality sense. Charismatic leaders, you know, just charming, appealing, and they, they, they pull a following, but they could be like the Pied Piper, <laughs> you know, the old story. They're simply drawing people astray. God examines our hearts. When Samuel was looking for a king, as the people wanted a king, he looks at Saul and says, hey, look, this guy's taller, he's bolder, he's bigger, he's everything they want in a king. And God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. He sees what people really are. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul writes, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And you see, Paul was without, Paul and the missionary team were without ulterior motive. Paul's concern for the integrity of the message and he deliberately avoided behavior or actions that might lead people to doubt or suspect the integrity of the message or the sincerity of his preaching. So he gives us three more negatives. The first is no flattering. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Paul asserts that they did not use flattery. What is flattery? It's remarks which, though insincere, are directed to the pleasure, pleasing of the person being flattered. Grant Richardson notes that flattery operates under ulterior motives. Flattery misleads people by making them think you believe in them more than you actually do. This is the sin of smooth words, of putting people off guard by smooth words, though, is lying. As Bruce Hurt says, the flatterer compliments you merely as a ploy to win your favour or to gain power over you. A flatterer is a man that tells you your opinion and not his own. Warren Wearsby says a flatterer is a person who manipulates rather than communicates. A flatterer can use either truth or lies to achieve his unholy purpose, which is to control your decisions for his own profit. Remember Aesop and his fables? Well, he says men seldom flatter with a purpose, and they who listen to such music may expect to pay the piper. I have met folk along the way some well-intentioned that tend to butter people up and flatter them. And I always get suspicious, even if I like the person and I know they meant well, I feel very uncomfortable when they tend to butter people up. It's not flattering. Genuine uh, encouragement, genuine praise in some situations, but how easy it is to actually be 
ingenuine when it comes to praising people because we really want something out of them. So I'll say something nice and they'll give me what, what I, I want or what I need. Paul says we didn't, flatter, we didn't use flattering speech. And he goes on to say there was no greed for, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. The phrase here is actually uh, the pretext for greed is like a picture of a cloak, a covering of covetousness. He didn't disguise his motives for personal gain. Paul didn't minister for financial gain. In fact, he, he refused uh, the right that he did have as an apostle to claim support. He worked as a tent maker uh, so that he would show the people he was giving rather than asking. It grows out of complete disinterest in the rights of others, an attitude foreign to Paul and his helpers. He had no ulterior motive, nor was he trying to fool or deceive anyone. False teachers do this all the time, and the traveling philosophers and teachers of Paul's day excelled at this. Adriana shared with me he worked with a, uh, a young fellow who was at one of the big uh, 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 prosperity doctrine churches and he said to him, you know what they do? And I think I've shared it before, but he said, you know what they do? They say to the other preachers from the big prosperity churches, you come and preach at my church and we'll take up a love offering for you. And the expectation is their church will do the same for him. It's personal, it's about their own gain. And if you talk to folk who live in some of those churches, as I have done, the power-breaking that goes on, the, 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 the image-making, the, the God-like behaviour is scary. But Paul says um, in Ephesians 5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has, any inheritance, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And he says, God is our witness. He's not asking for men's approval here. And this is a valuable lesson. If we constantly live in the reality that God is witnessing not only our actions and words, but also even our thoughts, every aspect that every aspect of our life is lived out before God. This would enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to grow and progress in being sanctified unto him and thus to become more and more what he intends us to be. And that brings us to the third area that he says we were not. Nor did we seek glory from men, either you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul clarifies that they were not seeking praise or asserting their authority as, as apostles of Christ. They, they weren't wanting to be known as the, as the biggest gospel proclaimers, the biggest evangelists. They simply, in the power of God, proclaimed truth regardless of what it cost. Paul didn't seek the praise of men. He was not one who lived for the approval and applause of men. As David Guzik says, when Paul ministered among the Thessalonians, he was unconcerned for his personal glory. He didn't need fancy introductions or lavish praise. Sometimes at conferences, it's interesting the lengths that some people will go to promote the person that's coming up to speak. And I've seen speakers go, swallow hard, because that was quite an introduction. In other words, you get the feeling it was overdone. 
flattery. <laughs> he didn't need those. His satisfaction came from his relationship with Jesus, not from the praise of people. That's a point for you to think on for a moment. Does my satisfaction come from my relationship with Jesus or do I need the praise of people? Interesting, isn't it? Paul did not abuse his apostolic privileges. Apostles were entitled to be supported by the churches to whom they were ministering. He could have flexed his apostolic muscles and demanded that the people accept his preaching at face value. He could have asserted his apostolic authority by insisting upon special treatment and support or allowed himself to be exalted as a holy man. However, Paul and his missionary friends refused such things, choosing rather to earn the respect of their brethren by means of their style of life among them. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3.9, Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. They wanted to be influencers, not of fame, but influencers of character, setting a model. And in fact, you can see here Paul's integrity and sincerity. He was consistent in word and deed. Paul's personal life reflected the message he preached, showing character and honesty. He was faithful and dependable. He proven himself to be someone that they could trust and rely on. And we find in his letters he's open and vulnerable. He's transparent about his own struggles and failings which made them, him relatable to his audience. As Ray Pritchard says, a ministry with integrity will stand the test of time. Everything else fades away. Fads come and go. Glitz will attract people, but it won't hold them. Good programs lose their appeal over time. New buildings grow old. Pastors stay for a while and then leave, but integrity never goes out of style. If we live to please the Lord, in the end, it won't matter what our critics say about us. And it reminds me of the words in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But sanctify, set apart as holy, Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We need to pray. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Father, help us to live the truth and not just to speak it. Give us Paul's passion for integrity and desire to please you and not men. Give us the boldness that comes from knowing Jesus and empower us with your Holy Spirit to grow in grace, truth, humility and love. Help us to turn our world upside down.